0: Welcome to the Ask Brian podcast radio show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups sharing their best advice for success and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome. to listening to KHCS 1220 and 98.1 FM. You're listening to the Ask Brian radio show. Mr. Engineer, how do you spell Ask Brian?
0: A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N.
1: Wow. Years and years and years of education, PhDs, masters, and he actually knows, finally, how to spell Brian.
0: I have a a master's in
1: Brianology. (laughs) How do you spell Brianology? B-R-I-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y.
0: I I think that's Brian Biology.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of biology, for those of you who have never listened to the Ask Brian radio show, each week we have our show and we talk to CEOs, startups, someone in the business world to try to teach you or help you with something about business. Could be currently what's going on in business. Could be somebody who has, has succeeded in business. Could be all of the above. And people ask all the time, Ask Brian is spelled with an A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N. And everyone says when I went to school, I spelled Brian B R I A N B R Y A N. I never heard of B R I A N unless it was the unless it was you know on St. Patrick's Day for the fellow down the down the road there, and he was Mister O'Brien from Ireland. And if it was Mister O'Brien from Ireland, then he would spell it with an E. But everybody else, you know, would spell it that way. And, and when I did spell it with an E, he always had corned beef and cabbage. So, anyway, I don't know if that's politically correct, but we'll see. The engineer who begins with an E. And that's why we ask him these questions. (laughs) So why do you spell Brian with an E?
0: Well, there's a number of ways why we spell E because there's a lot of words that have to to do You have to be able to wing it on this show. Yeah, it's true because Ask Brian has a lot of E words that have to do with the show. One of them was engineer, you know, excellence, which I, you know, he said I wasn't. And then uh, the expert, (laughs) which, eh, debatable. I think I am. But the major one that he definitely was not showing was empathy. He was not showing empathy on The no. S. Brian Show. No, he was not.
1: Uh, we were totally empathizing with you. <laughs> just know your intellectual <laughs> oh. level.
0: Oh. Hey, in, Intellectual that's, that's starts called, with an I.
1: That's called realism.
0: <laughs> <It> starts <laughs> with an R. <laughs> uh, anyways, the other other words we have uh, also have to do with effort because we give nothing but 110% effort on everything we do in the show. And then isn't there two of your favorite? They're pretty pretty much the same word that one is excitement, and the other one was... ENTHUSIASM! There you go.
1: Do you have all these?
0: I think that's all of them. Is there one more I'm forgetting?
1: Well, we're going to come back later on. (laughs) But without any further ado, how do you spell it?
0: A-D-I-E-U.
1: And why do I like the word?
0: Because majority of the letters are vowels. That's right.
1: Anyway, we do have a very special guest, as we do each week. Alan, are you there? I am here. So... Before we get started, we like to go over what your background is. So I know you've been in real estate for many, many years. Did you do anything prior to the
2: getting into the real estate industry? Prior to real estate, you know, it's been so long ago. I'm going to have to ponder that for 30 seconds. I was uh, spent some time in the consumer goods business. Actually, my first job out of school, believe it or not, was selling shortening to Italian grocers in San Francisco, California. And if you don't think that's a tall sales order, come uh, shadow me a day and I'll, I'll explain to you why that's tough. But uh, Procter & Gamble uh, morphed into a career with the NJ Gallo Winery, spent a couple of years there, and have been doing commercial real estate since Reagan was president. And I'm embarrassed to say that was his first term, not his second. So that uh, tells you how long I've been doing this. Quite a while. Uh,
1: longer than uh, a lot of stuff. Obviously pre-internet. So question for you, how do you go from consumer goods of Procter & Gamble and selling wine for uh, Gallo, how do you go from there into real estate? What got you into real estate? Were you doing real estate for Gallo
2: or for PG? No, neither one. The easy answer is my father refused to hire me. And uh, a, a little explanation there, our family business growing up was consumer goods. We had a Dr. Pepper Pepsi and 7 Up Barler distributorship in Texarkana, Texas. And so the plan was for me to take over the family business, and I went to school, got an economics degree, and my dad said, "Well, that's great. You got an economics degree, but I need you to, to go get some experience because you don't know anything." So I was able to get a job at Procter and Gamble on the West Coast, and I fell in love with the West Coast, and after Procter Gamble and Ian J. Gallo, I called my dad back and said, okay, dad, uh, ready to come run the family business. And he said, well, I'm going to sell the company and I'm not going to hire you. So I hope you enjoy California and make a nice living out there. And so that was, uh, that was 1984.
1: Sounds very George Orwellian, but, uh, 1984. <laughs> it, it was quite Orwellian, let me say.
2: <sighs> As
1: opposed to the day with a mess. Now, um, and we're not supposed to be politically here, so I don't know why the engineers talk about mass, but we'll, we'll go back to him soon. So, how do you go in, you know, real estate is all about leverage, to my understanding. Real estate is all about, you need to have some money, though, to put some money down to get into real estate. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what your background is or how much money you had saved. How do you get into real estate in
2: 1984? Well, I did it the old-fashioned way. I I, uh, became a real estate broker, and the the cool thing about being a real estate broker is you don't have employees and you don't have inventory, uh, and they also don't pay you. It's strictly a commission position. So if you're willing to sit for the exam and if you're willing to go six months to two years without making any money, the opportunities are limitless. And so I found a, a little company called Lee & Associates. They were little at the time. We're not little anymore. But we had one office we just recently expanded to two. And they were willing to take a shot on a, on a man who had nothing on his resume other than shortening and wine. And frankly, sales are sales. And for me, it was a matter of scratching out the word wine and, and putting in the word industrial building. And it's a pretty translatable sales process.
1: Well, so let's go over a couple of things since not everybody is aware of that. What is the difference between an industrial building and office building and commercial real estate?
2: So let me start with commercial real estate because commercial real estate really encompasses all the areas of real estate that aren't residential. And when I say that aren't residential... Units of greater than four units are considered commercial real estate. So if, if someone owns two duplexes that are in a complex, that's considered commercial real estate. If it were three units, then it's not considered commercial real estate. But the general genres, if you will, of commercial real estate are industrial, which take into account uh, manufacturing, logistics buildings like Amazon would occupy those would include food processing operations. Those would include service trucking, anything of, of an industrial uh, nature where folks make things or ship things would be considered an industrial building. An office building is where you go visit your friendly attorney, your friendly CPA, maybe your marriage counselor, maybe you take your kid to a professional to for tutoring or something of that nature. That would be an office building, and then and those come in many shapes and sizes. Those come in high-rises like you see in downtown Los Angeles. Those come in mid-rises like you might find in Santa Clarita. Uh, Those come as freestanding buildings, as as multi-building campuses. And then finally, you have retail, which is broken up into shopping centers and restaurants and anything having to do with locations where people go and purchase things, be they a service, be they product. And so those four general areas are what comprise commercial real estate. And really, uh, what differentiates the various genres of commercial real estate are the types of occupants that they attract. In other words, if you think about your attorney, your attorney wouldn't have a need for a building that had 32-foot warehouse clear height. Alternatively, someone that manufactures ramen noodles for a living wouldn't only be able to occupy office space because he'd have no place to actually manufacture the noodles. So those become the differentiators. Well, that that is quite interesting. Uh,
1: so one of our viewers has a question, uh, just came in, and he's trying to say, is every real estate transaction negotiable?
2: You would hope so. Although I would tell you in the industrial world right now, it is akin to what we're finding residentially, which every deal is a new high and multiple offers, very acute limit on availability and completely an owner's market. So in the industrial world, is everything negotiable? I would debate you as to whether it is. Flip side of that, if if you're a regional mall owner and you have a Sears store that just went dark, you bet you're going to be, you're going to find an owner that's incredibly willing to negotiate with you especially if you can take some big chunks of space off his hands so let's go back to industrial
1: why is it an owner's market today i mean i thought you can't even go into some areas and actually get industrial stuff going because everyone has to be spaced six feet apart and all these other rules with covert so how and why would the industrial space be so owner oriented at this moment
2: several reasons uh, the, the first reason is, is we have had, we, we were in a very robust economy before the pandemic hit a year ago. And we were faced with a very limited supply of available industrial buildings. There has just been a real lack of producing new supply because it takes an incredibly long time to get an industrial project entitled. And to give you an example of that, uh, a friend that owns, owns a piece of property in Colton, California. And he's been trying to get a piece of, he's been trying to get an industrial development entitled, and mind you, this is zone industrial. And he just simply went to the city of Colton and is trying to get a development plan approved. And he's two and a half years into the process. So if you couple the fact that we have a a, a limited supply of available buildings, we have uh, very difficult to create new supply, and you also have, uh, an increased demand from e-commerce, or frankly, anyone that's selling replacement parts, anyone that's selling food products—all of which fall into an industrial category—you just you have a classic Adam Smith case of supply and demand. There is demand that far exceeds the supply, and what happens, Mister Smith, when that occurs is that pricing goes through the roof.
1: No pun intended, because we're going to talk about buildings. <laughs>
2: Precisely. Thanks for thanks for picking up on that.
1: Uh, I, I'm the king of funds. Anyway, I don't know. The engineer's got something he wants to say. What do you want to say, Mr. Engineer? Nothing.
2: No, nothing. I got nothing. You, should, nothing. you should be the pontiff of puns. Uh, ha, ha, ha.
1: Exactly. I like the way this guy thinks. <laughs> so getting back to this whole industrial market, so how long does it typically take if you want to change the use of a building? So let's say you have, hey, I do have that <laughs> Sears store. And you know, the mall is closed down now. In fact actually there's a place called West Side Pavilion in Los Angeles right now, which was a shopping mall and now they now Google is taking it over to make it into office space. So my question mm-hmm. is, what's a typical time period for zoning to switch your commercial building into industrial use or a different type of use?
2: It strictly depends and, and I hate to I hate to dodge the bullet, but it strictly depends on the city. But, but let me tell you what you're gonna let me let me tell you what you're gonna encounter. And and so there's a, there's a Sears store that's that's in my, my hometown of Orange, California that just became dark about three weeks ago. And it's it's on a prime thoroughfare. Candidly it would be a, a decent alternative for an industrial location. We actually submitted the site to Amazon thinking it would be a great last mile distribution point. And here's what here's your challenge. So the tax revenue of a city is based upon a number of things, one of which is sales tax. And so a mall with a healthy Sears store generates XYZ amount of sales tax dollars each year, and the city counts on that and budgets for that accordingly. So if they change that zoning to industrial or anything that does not have an associated property or or, uh, uh, sales tax revenue to it, then they, in effect, limit their ability to collect sales tax on that particular parcel. So anything zoned retail to get zoned into something that does not generate sales tax is an extraordinarily tall order. The other thing you hear quite a bit happening is converting retail to multifamily. And if you think about, once again, your Sears store example, so a Sears store is very easy on city services. In other words, how many times are the police and or the fire department going to be dispatched to your local Sears store? And the answer is not very often. Whereas if you convert that SEER store into now 100, 200, 300 multifamily apartment units, you can see that the services that you have to provide are going to be exponential. So not only do you reduce the city's ability to receive sales taxes, but you also increase their costs, which are the services that a city provides. So therefore, that's a very long way of saying it is very difficult to change zoning from, someone that's from something that is tax-related to not tax-related.
1: Is that part, all part of the city development when they come up with the planning in the beginning, or does that happen at different stages?
2: The answer to both questions is yes. Master plan, overlay, those change over time. Uh, we've seen in the City of Orange, as an example, an overlay for multifamily in and, and some of the zones. You still have to go and apply for entitlements. But, but yeah, it, the answer to both questions is yes. By the way, Tracy, are you there?
3: Yes. Okay, so, Alan, my question is, with the impact of COVID being, you know, every impact of every layer of everyone's life to a degree, but really, really pivoting from being going into an office every day to then having – huge teams now vacate commercial properties to be working remotely. And then a lot of the articles you read are that maybe they'll come back to the office, maybe they won't. And I just have this vision of all these empty commercial buildings all over the country and how that could impact the communities and impact the economy. Can you speak to that?
2: I would love to. So remember we talked about the, the four genres, and I want to focus just briefly on office, retail, and industrial. And I'll start with the easy one first, which is industrial, which is, which is what I do. When the pandemic hit, candidly, none of us had any inkling what was to come. It was sort of shades of 2008, 2009. Are we going to be, you know, destitute for the next year or are there going to be transactions? How's the business community going to react? How are folks going to react working from home, working virtually, et cetera? And so, Every market retail, industrial office hit the pause button. as I mentioned, industrial was quite robust before the pandemic hit, and then we hit pause between let's call it mid eight mid mid-march until end of May, middle of June. so about a 90 day period of time and when when June dawned and the middle of June o- approached. Industrial demand just went on turbocharge like we've never seen before, and it's continued into this year. So the last half of 2020 and the first three months of 2021 are, are as robust industrial as I've ever seen it. Now, you look at what's happening in the office world, which is really what you described, folks that have to show up at an office suite every day and, and work. One of the things that that's taught us is you can do, most can do what they do anywhere. And, and we'll take, you know, an attorney as an example. Sure, you miss the culture. If you have clients that visit your office, that becomes a little clunky to do from home. If you have a staff, a paralegal, a secretary, an assistant, what, what have you, a junior producer, it becomes difficult to manage that team on a virtual basis. But. We've figured out how to do it. We've all gotten very good at Zoom. We've gotten very good at, you know, Microsoft Teams. We've gotten we've figured out how to do conference calling. We figured out how to do things much more efficiently than we did before. So the office world is in a big state of uncertainty. And and I would separate medical office from attorneys, CPAs, the traditional office user. Tremendous amount of uncertainty right now. Intendedly, we don't know where that's going to ultimately shake out. As a commercial real estate broker, if things are going up, we can make money. If things are going down, we can make money. When things are uncertain, that's when we suffer. And because throughout boardrooms in the United States, companies are saying, do we really need 10,000 feet of office space? Could we live in a third of that, a half of that, a tenth of that? Do we need it at all? But it takes a while for all that to sort of filter through. And I'll give you an example. So we we own an office building in the city of Orange. It's a 21,500 square foot building. We occupy 13,500 feet. We've got a partner that occupies 6,500, 7,000 feet. We don't need 13,500 feet. We could live in three or 4,000 feet because there are only about five people that come into the office every day. I, for one, work from home. So are we going to put the building on the market and fire sale it? Just so we can occupy three to four thousand feet? The answer is no. We're just going to keep our twenty one and a half thousand square feet of buildings and we're going to continue to operate it, albeit like three ping pong balls floating around in a big bathtub. But we're not gonna fire (laughs) sale that real we're not gonna fire sale that real estate. And now you can start to see how it takes a while for this to filter through. I suspect from now until the end of the year you're gonna start to see companies make those decisions, either we're all going to come back to the office, or we're not, or we're going to have some sort of a hybrid model. And here's that. Here's how that looks from a space standpoint. Now, retail is, is then again the, the third leg of the stool. And if you're a restaurant, if you're a bar, if you're a gym, if you're anything other than a, a big-box retailer like a Walmart or a Costco or a supermarket, chances are you have just been crushed for the past year. So your trajectory is pretty much known. There's no uncertainty. You know, boy, we better do something or we're just going to be completely out of business. We better close some branches. We better lay out some people. We better, we better just do food to go as opposed to people coming and dining in. We better better figure out how to do it outside. We better figure out some sort of model to stay alive. And so therefore, depending on the type of retail business you have Do we create an online presence? Do we sell our products through, uh, you know, potentially through Amazon? So unless you figure out a way to morph into the new normal as a retailer, you're going to die. So that's a very lengthy answer to a short question, but I hope that sort of gives you a flavor on, on what's happening with the three product types.
3: Well, it does, and then my question to piggyback on that is: is that those businesses that you were referencing—the ones that have really been hit hard—the restaurants, the gyms, the any like massage therapy, any of those kind of businesses that are really COVID impacted heavily? What about leases? And if your business is already on the edge and you're leasing a commercial space, I mean is there going to be any flexibility for these people so that they can stay in business or, and I know you're probably, you're obviously more in the buying and selling aspect, but I was just curious if you have any insights on, you know, what's going to happen to these small to medium sized businesses with these huge leases ahead of them.
2: Well, see, here's what happens. Uh, I have owners that I represent that that own multiple holdings. And so we, we have these conversations almost on a daily basis. And, and I'll, I'll use the Irvine Company as an example because they're a, they're a big property owner in Orange County, and, and to kind of watch what they did a year ago was, was pretty insightful. So Irvine Company, if you're unfamiliar, owns a number of apartment units, so multifamily. They also own retail centers. They own office buildings. Last March, they sent out a blanket letter to all of their tenants, the family that leases a 1,200-square-foot apartment to a law firm that leases 70,000 square feet of high-rise office space. And they said to them, all right, we realize that uncertain times ahead, here's what we're willing to do. We're willing to forego a period of time you don't have to pay us rent. However, the, the period of time for which you don't pay us rent, maybe that's three months, six months, what have you, we're going to tack that onto the lease term. So let's say a company signed a 36-month lease. They were 12 months into it. When this hit, Irvine Company came to them and said, okay, you've now got 24 months left. We're going to forbear six months of rent. The term now became 30 months. So we tacked that six months on to the end. And they did that with they did that with their office tenants, with their retail tenants, with their multifamily tenants, the hope of which, let's get through the tough part of this, and hopefully the skies will clear and, and we'll have a little bit better idea of where we're going. Now, this thing ended up lasting a lot longer than any of us anticipated. The other interesting thing that was happening at the same time is the Small Business Administration, which funds probably 90% of the of the small business loans that are used to acquire commercial real estate, came in and said, you know what, we're going to eliminate payments on both 504 loans, which is one portion of an SBA loan, 7A loans, which is another portion of an SBA loan. And all of a sudden, you don't have to pay debt service for six months. And by the way, this is an existing SBA loan, or this is a newly originated SBA loan, which really gave businesses a nice shot in the arm. Now, these are things that you don't hear about in the media. I guess we're the media now, so we're hearing about it. But this is, these are things that you don't. <laughs> yeah, you know, but we're, you, you do, we're the
3: media who supports businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the media who supports these people who are struggling. That's for sure.
2: <laughs> Precisely. So, uh, but, but you don't read about it in the papers necessarily. You don't. You don't hear it. Right. On, you know, on CNN or Fox. But these are real-world examples of the ways in which government and large property owners have responded to adjust and and address the pandemic.
3: Well, and I would wish that everyone would handle their situation like the company that you are referencing because... There's empathy and compassion in that, but then there's also still monetization for them in the back end, so they're still ultimately, ideally, going to be able to get the rent completed, but they're also showing that they really care about the people who lease from them, so kudos Pre- to that. Precisely.
2: Precisely. And
3: so, so, in the context of talking about these owners and these properties, you mentioned that they own commercial space, they own residential space it's such a great business model for people's investment portfolio. And I know this is one of the areas of expertise that you really focus on is building commercial real estate as part of an investment portfolio. Give us some tips and tricks on how one could do that.
2: The best tip I can give you is if if you own a business that occupies a commercial space as a tenant, figure out how to buy and own your own building that is the greatest vehicle to create generational wealth through commercial real estate ownership. And if you start to think about it, let's use a a 5,000 square foot machine shop and he has a building or she has a building in Anaheim, California. And all of a sudden, landlord comes to them and says, guess what? There are no 5,000 square foot buildings that would house your operation. I'm going to increase your rent by 30%. And what are you going to do? You know, you're going to probably pay it because it's too costly for you to relocate. So, figure out a way to buy and own your own building. The interest rates these days for purchasing commercial property, I mentioned the Small Business Administration. Small Business Administration will finance 90% of your purchase. In some cases, they'll finance improvements to the building that you purchase. A portion of that loan is 20-year fixed-rate mortgages at under 3.5% they are phenomenal, phenomenal loans. And you start to put a pencil to what does it cost you to own versus what it costs you to rent, and there's not a great differential. So once you become an owner of a commercial property with yourself as the tenant, that is a beautiful scenario because your business value is growing at the same time your commercial real estate holdings, those values are growing. I have a client in Brea, California, that's a plastic injection molding company. He occupies a 30,000 square foot building. He purchased it for me in 1990. The building is worth five times more than his business, five times more than his business. Now think about that. And meanwhile, the business has paid that mortgage every single month. mortgage is now paid off, so he owns this building free and clear and think about that for generational wealth it's just a phenomenal phenomenal way now let's say you don't own your own business and therefore you don't have a tenant that needs a place to live you can you can still you can still invest in commercial real estate there's such a thing as a real estate investment trust which is a wall street some are, some are private some are wall street traded so you can buy little pieces of large portfolios through stock ownership that way. But I would suggest that if you don't have your own company and you don't therefore have a tenant that needs a place to live, if you don't want to invest in the stock market through REITs, start small. Maybe you buy a, a house for one of your grown children to live in or a friend to live in or maybe where your child goes to school, to college, as opposed to paying you know, the state of California a bunch of money for off-campus housing. Maybe think about buying a condo or think about buying a house next to the campus. And your child can occupy it while they're there. And then once they're not, you, you can rent it out to, to others in the community. So those are just a couple, free four ideas as to how to start investing in commercial real estate and build that family wealth.
3: I love the strategy that you talked about in terms of from the investment perspective of a business being able to you know, find a way to buy their own business and use commercial real estate in that way. And the independent investor that's always very motivating too to get into but how does one get into the business at the level that you are I mean I realize that you've invested you know 35 plus years of your time and energy but if you were to speak to somebody who's listening to the show and going I want to do what he does what would be the steps that they would take and, the, and maybe some secret tips that you could provide along the way that learning lessons that you've learned
2: well, since we're using movie analogies, I'll use one as well. Run, Forrest, run. <laughs> 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 so
3: what's your saying Is real estate is in a box of chocolates? <laughs> uh,
2: thank you. Thank you. Thank you for continuing that. That's absolutely the case. Commercial real estate has very definite barriers to entry. It's easy enough to get a license. It's easy enough to find someone to hire you because keep in mind they're not paying you and as opposed to a a traditional sales position that exists today, they're probably not going to train you either. And that sounds very counterintuitive, but it's realistic. So, therefore, the net of that is you'll probably find someone to hire you. But how successful are you going to be? I would give you these suggestions, these recommendations. You know, the, the first thing is really figure out what you want your specialty to be. If you want to deal with corporate America and deal with corporate counsel and never get your shoes dirty and be on an airplane and do all those sorts of things, you know, probably office space leasing is for you because rarely are you going to be dealing with the ultimate decision maker. You're going to be dealing with a a site selector that's got to report to a board of directors on, on up the ladder conversely, if you want to deal with people who own and occupy, own and operate their own business and have somewhat of an, of an entrepreneurial bent, then I would say retail or industrial would be good places for you to land. So first and foremost, pick out a specialty. The second thing I would suggest that you do is decide, okay, do I want to go to work for a, a global company, a C.B. Richard Ellis, a Jones Lang LaSalle, a, um, a Cushman and Wakefield Am I satisfied with something that's more national in scope, you know, a Lean Associates? Do I want something that's maybe a little more regional in scope, a Voight, a DOM, you know, an Asheville Associates? So figure out your specialty, figure out where your skills lie within a type of company, and then find the very best office within that company. I can tell you Lean Associates our most profitable, successful office is our Inland Empire office. They just absolutely crush it year in, year out. So within that group of offices, find the very best one, and then find the very best mentor within that office, within that specialty that's willing to take you on and teach you the business. So specialty, type of company, best office within the company, best mentor within the office and do something that he or she is unwilling to do. If he or she is unwilling to make cold calls, then you volunteer to make cold calls. If they don't like social media marketing, then you volunteer to do the social media marketing. Make yourself valuable to that mentor.
1: How do people reach you? Because we've got about 20 seconds left.
2: A. Buchanan at Lee-Associates.com, and I'm all over social media. It's Allen, A-L-L-E-N-C, Buchanan, B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N.
1: Thank you very much. You listen to the Ask Brian Radio Show, KTHS 1220,
0: 98.1 FM. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts.